0: I had a dream last night. (laughs) No, I did. And it was weird. It was really weird. Cheryl and I were about to board a cruise ship in L.A. And just as we were about to walk up the plank there and get onto the ship, I realized that we did not have our passports and wherever this ship was going, we needed to have our passports. Well, that was okay. Our passports were down at my folks' house in uh, Mission Viejo, California, an hour and a half drive south, two hours if you're counting for traffic. And so I tried to get back there, and it was so, you know how dreams are. It was so bizarre, I left the cruise terminal, and next thing I found myself, I was in a Toys R Us. <laughs> And I'm looking around Toys R Us, and I'm thinking, I've got to get some transportation. There's no way I can walk down to Mission Viejo and back up to L.A. and make this cruise. I only had a short amount of time, and so I found this ride-on toy. I jump on it, and I'm headed down the freeway on this thing. (laughs) I'm not kidding. This was my dream last night. It was very disturbing, a little upsetting. I woke up this morning, and I said, Shirley, I'm not going into Toys R Us anytime soon. (laughs) We all have strange dreams, we all have weird ones, but I don't know if we often have dreams as disturbing as the dream that we are going to study tonight. Now before we jump in, I got to give you guys a textual note. Um, we're going to be covering a lot of stories across the next 12 chapters of Daniel, but we're not going to cover all the stories that are sometimes attributed to Daniel. Uh, We're not going to cover the prayer of Atzeria and the song of the three holy children. We're not going to cover Shoshana and the elders. Or Susanna and the elders. Don't you cry for me. We're not going to cover the story of Bell and the dragon. These are all three additional stories in some Bibles. The Catholic Bible, the Eastern Orthodox Bible, adds these extra stories in. The prayer of Azariah and the, uh, the song of the three holy children is, is stuck in between Daniel 3.23 and Daniel 3.24. We're not going to cover Shoshana and the elders. That would be Daniel chapter 13. <laughs> Okay, so that's an additional chapter that's added on. Again, in some Bibles, we're not going to do Bell and the Dragon, chapter 14. Why not? Why do we have, as many of you know, in the King James Version or the New American Standard Bible, the NIV, some of the more common translations used today, why are there only 12 chapters? But in the Catholic Bible, you've got the full 14 plus the addition in chapter 3. Why is that? Those three stories that I mentioned to you are non-canonical That is, they never met. They don't meet the strict standards of biblical interpretation. For more conservative Bible scholars, both Jewish and Christian, they don't include them. Because they seem to have been written after the fact and inserted later on. And not actually by the prophet Daniel himself. There are also apocryphal books. Apocryphal, that is, they are of uncertain origin, and they are added later to Latin, the the Vulgate and the Greek documents, the Septuagint, and one by uh, Theodotion, who I always thought was a Monty Python guy, but apparently not. (laughs) These stories are not found in the oldest Hebrew manuscripts, they're not found in the Masoretic text. And yeah, the Masoretic text dates back to the 9th century BC and it is the o- oldest Hebrew copy of the scriptures that we have. The Masoretic text also matches up very well, beautifully actually, with the Dead Sea Scroll fragments of Daniel that were discovered that run about the 3rd to the 1st century. So again, all, all that to say, we're going to take Daniel without embellishment. For as we have said recently, the Word of God needs no embellishment. We come to Daniel chapter 2, which begins, as I said, with disturbing dreams. Note that, not one dream, but a series of dreams. Nebuchadnezzar will have been dreaming this dream over several nights. Again and again, God is persistent in getting his attention here. Daniel chapter two, verse one. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, plural, and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious or troubled to understand the dream. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. His name, Nebu Kuduri Utzuri, or Utzur, means Nebu, or Nabu, protects the crown. Nabu being one of the many gods, one of the higher up gods of the Babylonians. Nabu protects the crown. That's the name of, uh, of the king. But as our story begins, the crown is obviously a bit askew. <laughs> And Nebuchadnezzar is being kept up nights by... I'll give you several points to follow in an outline. Let's jump right in. Number one, disturbing dreams. Disturbing dreams. Nebuchadnezzar has dreamed this more than once. And so finally, he calls in four teams of advisors. Four different groups are listed here. They are unique groups, all four that come in to him. There are the magicians there in verse 2. The magicians. The Hebrew word is kartom and it literally means those who deal with dark magic and the occult so he calls in that group calls in the conjurers the ashaf what ashaf means in the hebrew is to whisper the conjurers are the whisperers the breathers they are the enchanters he calls in the soothsayers that word is the kashaf and the soothsayers are particularly workers of witchcraft and then finally, the Chaldeans. Now, you might have noticed that the Chaldeans were called in. What, all of them? Because this is Babylon in the land of Chaldea. These are the Chaldean people. But you need to understand the word Chaldean is more than an ethnic uh, moniker, more than an ethnic term for Babylonians. Chaldeans in the Hebrew, it's Kazdim. Kazdim, it literally means clod breakers. Clod breakers. I read that and I I was instantly transported back to about the second grade when a kid down the street threw a dirt clod at my face. And I, in that moment, was a Chaldean. (laughs) My face was a clod breaker. It literally means, not just the ethnic term, it means the priestly caste or the wise men of Babylon. And it's really interesting, this Kazdim, what happened is when Cyrus the Persian, who you'll be introduced to later on in the book of Daniel, when he conquered Babylon, when the Medes and the Persians overtook Babylon and it entered into its next phase, the next rulers there, Persian magi mixed with these Babylonian Kazdim, they came together and began to share their secrets and to study especially astrology together. Diodorus of Sicily, who is a Greek historian from around 80 to 20 BC, and the author of Bibliotheca Historica, you might want to jot that down, I'm sure you can pick it up on Amazon, he said the following, being assigned to the service of the gods, they spent their entire life in study, their greatest renown being in the field of astrology. But they occupy themselves largely with soothsaying as well, making predictions about future events, and they give out interpretations of both dreams and portents. And I spend a little extra time on the Kasdim, because I think that's interesting. I wonder, and it's been speculated, the influence Daniel may have had on this group. Daniel himself, a wise man among the wise men of Babylon. In fact, after tonight's story, he is elevated to the wisest. He is put above all the others. He is the go-to guy for wisdom and for understanding and for understanding and interpreting dreams and their meanings. But it makes you wonder, might they eventually yield the Magi from the East who came to worship Jesus? Magi who were of Persian or Persian origin coming together with these Kazdim in Babylon. And just a short 500 years or so later, when Jesus was born we know the wise men the magi came from the east so just something to chew on and think about these four groups are called in and verse 4 tells us then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic now stop right there they spoke to the king in Aramaic you might want to jot this down in your Bible some of you may be aware of this but from verse 4 in chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter uh, 7 verse 28 of chapter 7 all of these chapters are written in Aramaic we were in Hebrew up to this point now it's Aramaic all the way through chapter 7, the Babylonian language. Why? Why the sudden change? This is, this is odd because this is still the Hebrew Bible. This is still the Tanakh, the, the Hebrew Scriptures. Why suddenly all this Babylonian, Kazdim language, the language of, of Aramaic? And the answer is very simple and you'll see this as we go. It's because right now God is not talking to Israel. He's talking to the nations. And Babylon was the grand, glorious nation above all nations in the day. The Lord is now speaking to the entire world and not just to Israel. Now you might wonder about that a bit and think, now wait a minute, didn't we say on Sunday that the prophecies of Daniel are supposed to be sealed up until the end of time? And if they're sealed up, then how can the Lord be talking to the world? Understand this. The prophecies in the latter half of Daniel, beginning in chapter 8 specifically, but also about 7, running all the way to the end of the book, were sealed. Someone asked me Sunday morning, were they sealed literally? Did Daniel take the scroll and wrap it up and seal it with hot wax and put it in a jar and stick it away and say, we can't open this until the end times? No, I believe that they were sealed in terms of understanding that they were sealed in terms of no one... even if you did read them, even if you tried to understand them. And trust me, people did. Jewish scholars did across the years. And it didn't make any sense. Many of the things written in Daniel were just too hard to get. There wasn't the context for them. There wasn't the ability to look back. And some other things had not yet occurred. Messiah hadn't come. And so the book remained sealed until the end of time. But in this section, largely, like I said, it's written in Aramaic is multiple open messages from God to the nations regarding His coming kingdom. And seeing that God's coming kingdom has yet to come, we as part of the nations have something to hear and should be paying attention. Oh, that our nation would pay attention even just to the message we're going to share tonight. Oh, that the nations of the world would open their eyes and their ears to hear the word of the Lord as He proclaims the coming kingdom, the one kingdom that will last, the kingdom that is eternal. But at this point, God's speaking to the nations. J. Vernon McGee said God has taken the scepter out of the line of David and He's put it into Gentile hands. It will stay there until the day He comes to take the scepter back. And when He does, it will be with nail-pierced hands because it is God's intention for Jesus to reign. And reign He will. Luke 21.24, Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled. And we need to know that they were in the times of the Gentiles when Jesus said that. The times of the Gentiles didn't start after Jesus came. They started before Jesus came in 586 B.C. at the destruction of the first temple. That was the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. And it's been rolling on ever since. And Jerusalem has indeed been trampled underfoot ever since that time. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, in the dream we're about to get to here, saw both the beginning and the end of the times of the Gentiles. He saw the beginning because he started it all in the destruction of Jerusalem. He saw the end in the way of a dream. Verse 4, continuing on, the Chaldean spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Kazdim, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish or a dung heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. (laughs) Uh, They answered a second time and said... Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. And the king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. Inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream. That I might know, or that I may know, that you can declare to me its interpretation. And the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. (laughs) these are the wise men by the way and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh well because of this the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon so the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them some think Nebuchadnezzar was just cleaning house. He was only two years into his rule. And in this at this point, some are saying he was fed up with these conjurers, these wise men, these blowhards, because they were just making stuff up, and he knew it. He wasn't an idiot. He was a smart king. He knew what was going on. Tell me the dream and its interpretation, or he says, you will be torn limb from limb. By the way. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just speaking euphemistically. Eastern monarchs used to take four trees and they would have them bent together and tied at the top with a rope. And then they'd take their victim and they would tie each limb of the victim to one of the four trees. And then they would snap the rope. And when the trees bent back up, it literally tore people limb from limb. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar, we believe, is talking about here. I'm going to take you guys apart if you don't tell me the dream and the interpretation. He was no fool. Nebuchadnezzar hadn't risen from a petty chieftain to a great unifier of divergent tribes and factions by chance. He hadn't become conqueror of mighty nations like Assyria and Egypt, you know, by the luck of the draw. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the world's first dictator simply by fortune. He was a brilliant leader. Of course, you know, in reality, all of this happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life for one true reason, and that's because God willed it. The Lord spoke through Jeremiah. Jeremiah 27, verse 6, and He said, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant and I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him God calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant three times in the book of Jeremiah Jeremiah 27 verse 6 25 verse 9 and Jeremiah 43 verse 10 Nebuchadnezzar my servant but it's interesting now that the Lord has a unique way of getting the attention of his servant disturbing dreams sometimes God speaks this way Divine messages sent to disturb an otherwise clueless or comfortable life. The dream keeps coming sometimes until we get it. Well, what evidence of that kind of thing do you have, Rick? Uh, Well, Jacob had disturbing dreams. Um, Joseph had some disturbing dreams. Samuel had disturbing dreams. How about Joseph of Nazareth? The Bible tells us in Matthew 1.20 an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now Mary had already told him that and of course his response as mine probably would have been was, (laughs) right. But in the dream, the angel now comes to Joseph. I think that's interesting because... We we can only assume it was the same angel, but Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, who you're going to meet in the book of Daniel for the first time, came to Mary in person. Joseph never saw him in person. Joseph only saw him in dreams. In fact, Joseph would go on to have four more dreams hearing from God throughout Matthew chapter 2. Why? Why doesn't Joseph get to see the angel face to face? Why Mary? And why does Joseph just have dreams? And the answer is Faith. Faith. There is something about a dream that forces you to consider if it is truly from the Lord and it draws out faith. Now some of you may be saying, yeah, Rick, that's that's really dangerous. I understand that, which is why we always test dreams against the Word of God. Why you don't ever take a dream at face value. Well, I dreamed last night that I'm supposed to be riding a Toys R Us toy down the road in California. I'm off! And you might say, ridiculous, but you know what? I've heard people follow ridiculous dreams that were not biblically substantiated. Like another Joseph Smith. Or Mohammed. Among the many across the years who have taken their dreams as word of truth over the word of God. And the reality is the Lord never contradicts or countermands His own word. Amen. So if you think you're having a dream from the Lord, and you may because we're told, Acts chapter 2, verse 17, In the last days I will pour forth of My Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. We kid around about the old men thing, but gang, we're told that we will dream dreams in the last days. So God puts his approval on that and says, I may send you a message that way. Well, Lord, great, but how do I know it's really from you? And I'm not just freaking myself out. Test it against my word. If it aligns with my word, then you can probably be confident it's from me. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 7 says, For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Disturbing dreams. By the way. Don't expect rainbows and butterflies in dreams given by the Lord. Because the way I read it in Scripture, almost every single dream God gave to someone was disturbing. It was discomforting. It it, it rattled them a bit. And oftentimes dreams are sent to pull us out of a spiritual dullness. Remember, he says, Isaiah 55.11, My word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Well, all the king's conjurers and all the king's wise men were at a loss to discern the interpretation, not to mention the dream itself. Again, back in, in verse 10, They say, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing the king demands is difficult, and there's no one who could declare it to the king except the gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. You're asking us the impossible. By the way, what does this tell us? We've got magicians, sorcerers, conjurers, workers of dark magic, those who are involved and engaged in the dark arts, the things of Satan, and they can't interpret the dream. What does that tell us about our enemy? It tells us, gang, that Satan has limited discernment. Satan is not omniscient. Satan doesn't know always what's going on. Satan can't get into your head unless, you know, you let him, invite him in. He can't read your thoughts. Satan is not the opposite of God. Satan is not so strong as we think he is. And from time to time, I I need to point that out because we start to get, I think, as we follow the Lord into a spiritual lingo that says, if bad things are happening to me, it's because Satan's overpowering me. I'm always under attack. Satan has limited discernment. He may be wily. He is certainly cunning. But that's the best he's got. Daniel has more discernment than Satan does in this instance. Satan's got all these conjurers and they can't figure it out. But Daniel will. Daniel can. In fact, I love this in the book of Daniel. This guy seems to be one step ahead of the enemy all the way through. Even when he's thrown into the lion's den, he's fine. It's cool. He's always one step ahead. Satan can never get the better of him. Now, watch this. Watch how Daniel discerns. This is the second point as we study through this. We move from disturbing dreams to... Number two, a devilish dilemma. A devilish dilemma. Verse 14. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent or so harsh? And then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. And then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. Daniel is still between the age of about 18 to 21. And he deals with this with absolutely masterful discernment. He is a wise young man. He and his three friends are either finishing or have just completed Nebuchadnezzar's training course when this crisis hits. And and I want you to, for a moment, put yourself into Daniel's shoes and recognize how serious this was. This would be like your boss calling you up, and we can't even fathom this, but your boss calling you up and saying, listen, if those reports that are due tomorrow are not in my hands in five minutes, I'm going to have you torn limb from limb. (laughs) And the executioners are on their way to your house. I I can't even imagine. That's what was going on. Daniel was a dead man. Daniel's friends were about to be murdered. This is a life or death situation. And had I been Daniel in that time, at the moment, I would have been freaking out. I would have been like, how can we escape? How can we get out of here? We've got to figure something out. Daniel shows amazing discernment. And he answers the question, and maybe you're in this place tonight, how do you discern the will of God in the midst of a devilish dilemma? When you can't hear Him because the world is coming at you from all sides. Four side notes here for you. Instead of freaking out, Daniel just got the facts. And that's a great place to start. Instead of freaking out, Daniel got the facts. Verse 14, verse 15, it tells us he replied with discretion and discernment. In other words, Daniel didn't flip out. He sought clarity. He didn't jump to put out a fire. He said, let's understand what's going on. Let's, let's get some understanding here and it reminds me that few things in life are truly emergencies now you may feel differently I know I do from time to time but few things are the emergencies that we make them out to be we get in a panic and we think this has got to be fixed right now today, this minute or I'm not going to make it through the night and then you know what we do? we wake up the next morning and go this has got to be fixed right now or I'm not going to make it through the day (laughs) panic And there are very few things that are actual emergencies. I have learned this in my life the hard way to stop and take a breath. Okay, Lord. This doesn't look good. We can acknowledge that with Daniel. But let's get all the facts. Is there something that we're missing here? And there was. The the king just wanted the dream. Okay. I just want you to tell me what I dreamed. And what it means. So Daniel says, wow, okay, can I have a little bit of time? Can I talk to my friends? Bottom line is that Daniel did what the Bible tells us to do, Psalm 46 verse 10, cease striving and know that I am God. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And so instead of freaking out, Daniel got the facts. Secondly, instead of fretting, Daniel tapped into faith. Instead of fretting, he tapped into faith. As verse 16 points out, he went and requested the king for more time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. There's some confidence in there. If you can give me a little time, I'll come back with your answer. He wasn't cocky, but he was a young man of great faith. Daniel somehow knew the Lord was going to bring the answer. And he just needed to wait to hear it. And that is so much the way it is in my life. Where I'm freaking and God says, just be patient. I'm going to give you an answer. But you need to come to me with faith. So Daniel decides to take a little bit of time. I love Psalm 131, verse 1. Some of you have heard me mention this many times. When I ran into this verse, it just slowed up my whole life. Oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Feeling overwhelmed? Feeling like life is too difficult? Time for faith. Because there is nothing too difficult for the Lord. Amen. Isaiah 40, verse 31, you know the verse, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And Daniel might add, they won't be torn limb from limb. So instead of fretting, Daniel tapped into faith. Number three, instead of being forlorn, Daniel sought fellowship. He didn't go off into a corner of self-pity. He sought the fellowship of his friends. I love that. Verse 17, the first thing he does after checking with Nebuchadnezzar after getting this information is he goes right back and gathers Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. He says, guys, I need you to pray with me. Now, listen. And I, I think I can say this pretty dogmatically. I'm convinced that greater power is released to us when we pray together than when we pray alone. Jesus said where two or three have gathered together in My name, I am there, in their midst. And I have learned this as well, that when I pray in fellowship, I hear things I don't hear when I pray alone. When I gather with other believers and take things before the Lord, I get spiritual insight. I get discernment. I hear wise things that I know didn't come from me. Things that would elude me otherwise. Sometimes I just like to listen to other people pray. Because it quiets my soul. Their faith strengthens my faith and their hearing of the Spirit strengthens my ability to hear the Spirit and together we walk out this thing called faith. And I will keep mentioning this to you. That's why we have prayer starting at 5.30 on Wednesday nights. To invite you to come and listen. And you don't have to have some big issue in your life. You don't have to have some big problem. You can just come and pray. I I know, again, work and, and schedules, I get that. This is not a guilt trip thing. It's just we're here and we're praying. And you're invited. So instead of being forlorn, Daniel sought fellowship. And finally, instead of fearing Nebuchadnezzar, the source of the crisis, Daniel does something marvelous. When he gets the answer, he doesn't rush off to give it. He pauses to worship the Father. He pauses to worship the Father. Verse 19, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. It is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings. He establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is He, note this, it is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what it is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you for you have made known to us the King's Matter. Marvelous. And by the way, note this, Daniel prays this prayer of praise, this blessing of the Lord before the crisis was resolved. The crisis is still there. Now Daniel has the answer to the crisis, but it's not over yet. He doesn't rush to take care of the crisis and then go to church. He stops right then and opens up his lungs to pray this most magnificent prayer of faith to bless the name of the Father. Make it practical. He knew he had his answer, but the decree wasn't lifted. The bill was yet to be paid. The cure was not yet administered. The resolution wasn't complete. And yet he praised the Lord. It's as we've said before, it would be Moses and the children of Israel rejoicing and praising the Lord on this side of the Red Sea as opposed to that side thanking the Lord and praising Him prior to your healing before the resolution of the problem comes while the crisis still seems to be going on to stop and bless the name of the Lord for He has brought the answer. And that's what Daniel's doing here. He doesn't bow to the source of distress, Nebuchadnezzar. He pauses to praise the Father. How could he do that? How does this 18, 19, 20-year-old have such incredible faith? I think simply Daniel knew that everything happens on God's timetable. That nothing happens outside of the awareness of God. He understands what's going on. So Daniel here was not about to bypass a little spontaneous worship. When you face the next devilish dilemma in your life, remember, get the facts, approach it with faith. Seek fellowship and praise the Father. It's a winning combination, and that's what Daniel shows us practically right here. First John 5, verse 4 tells us, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Verse 24, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Now that's amazing. Whatever for those dorks, just take care of me. <laughs> you know? I mean, Daniel's concerned for everybody. Don't destroy anyone. It's all good. It's all cool. I know they're charlatans, but, you know, it's good. Don't destroy them. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Well, Ariok hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as followed: follows I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. And the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. And you can almost see Nebuchadnezzar rolling his eyes. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, I just heard that from the other guys. However, Daniel says... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place, note this, in the latter days. That is in the future. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O King, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And He who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. As for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. In the midst of disturbing dreams and this devilish dilemma, the Lord brings to Daniel, number three, divine disclosure. A divine disclosure. He is the God of revelation. He is not the God of hiddenness, the God of darkness, the God of secrecy. He is the God who loves to reveal. And the point of these dreams is not to conceal the truth, but to reveal it. Not to play games with Nebuchadnezzar, but to speak truth into this king's heart. Not to shroud in darkness, but to bring to the light. The verse 22 says, It is He who reveals profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. So if you're in the dark about something in your life, guess what? God knows what's there. And He dwells in everlasting light. He sees what's going on. He sees what you don't see. He understands what I don't understand. This is where God lives. And you don't pull a fast one on the Lord. And He delights to unseal and to reveal mysteries to anyone who would trust Him by faith. And see, that's what catches some people up. They'll say, oh, okay, see, that, that, that's it. You tell me I have to believe in Him before He'll explain these things to me. Yeah, exactly. Why? He wants you to trust Him. Why? Because in trusting Him, He can save you. Why? Because He kind of likes you. Why, why are you asking me Why? <laughs> The Lord wants to save, wants to reveal, desires to draw people close to Him. And He says, will you just trust Me? Will you just come believing I'm the God who opens out the truth? By the way, this revelation is unprecedented. The revelation God gives Daniel has never had never happened before, at least from the biblical record. Joseph had interpreted dreams, but no one before had ever been given the interpretation and the dream itself. Daniel had to have both. And God revealed them. And such was Daniel's faith that he knew both the dream and the interpretation had been given to him with confidence before he tested it with Nebuchadnezzar. That's what allowed him to come before Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't like, I, I, I think this might be it. Throw this out here and see if, if, if he's pinging on this, if he's agreeing with me. <laughs> and if not, I'm out of here. He knew. He knew. I think the Lord wants us to walk with that kind of confidence in our faith. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of revelation, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. God wants to reveal more of Himself to you. And if you tonight are sitting here going, I know like this much about God, guess what? He wants to show you this much. And all He's asking is that you will trust Him and believe Him and walk with Him. Technically, I hate to tell you this, but these aren't the days of Elijah. They aren't. Those were the days, and we sing that song, these are the days of Elijah, you know, great song, but they're not the days of Elijah. Those were the days when revelation came through the prophets. These are the days when revelation comes through Emmanuel, God with us. Revelation comes directly from Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1-2 says, In these days he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. So if you want revelation, gotta go to Jesus. Because he is the revealer. John 14, verse 20, Jesus said, In that day you will know that I am in My Father, and you in Me, and I in you. He who has My commandments and keeps them is the one who loves Me. And he who loves Me will be loved by My Father. And listen, I will love him and will disclose Myself to him. I'm going to bring revelation. Revelation comes by Jesus. Well, verse 31. We're going to get to the dream here eventually. (laughs) You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, and I think it probably looked like Nebuchadnezzar, that statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold. Now remember, Daniel has not been told this. He is telling Nebuchadnezzar what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed. This would be as weird as if you said, Rick, you know what, last night you had this weird dream about this cruise ship and riding this thing. It's weird. (laughs) The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. But the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found." But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the dream. I wish I was there. Wouldn't it be cool to be standing by Daniel and just watching Nebuchadnezzar's face as he goes from something like this... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you know the change this guy knows what I, I haven't told anybody this how does he know how can he possibly know there are some important clues to understanding Nebuchadnezzar's dream this dream of this marvelous statue understand first of all that it covers world history from Babylon to Christ's first coming and then skips all the way ahead to Christ's second coming and His kingdom. I'll show you how. The nations historically depicted here all had immediate bearing, and this is incredibly important, all had immediate bearing on the nation of Israel. That's what connects these nations. Not that they happened in a row, which they did for the most part, but that they're connected to Israel. Finally, you need to notice that each one of these nations' medals is of... Well, diminishing value. Diminishing strength. Contrary to popular belief, the nations are not evolving in this world. They are devolving. We are not better than Babylon. We are not stronger. People say America is the most wealthy, uh, prosperous, and powerful nation in the history of the world. No, we're not. We're not. We think we are. Every generation thinks it's the best and is better than the previous one. But we're not. We're not getting better, gang. In fact, all world governments are deteriorating. And the dream gives us that indication. You need to follow this through and remember this. From Babylon all the way down, gold to silver to bronze to iron to iron mixed with clay. Diminishing value. So look at the interpretation, verse 36. Daniel says, this was the dream, and now we will tell its interpretation before the king. Notice he said, we. So I'm assuming Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael are there with him. The boys have prayed together, and perhaps the God brought revelation to all of them. We just kind of see Daniel as the spokesman here. But he said, here's the interpretation. We're going to give it to you now. You, O king, are the king of kings. (laughs) Which I'm sure made Nebuchadnezzar brighten up again. I just want I just want snapshots of successive faces of Nebuchadnezzar as he's talking with Daniel here. You're the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar's going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> You know, I'm the guy. I am the head of gold. Bad news, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. That would be the silver arms and chest. And then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Gold. The head of gold, that's the empire of Babylon. It began in 612 B.C. Not by Nebuchadnezzar, by his father. Nebuchadnezzar would come on and rule next. And it was the greatest absolute monarchy in history to date. He was the greatest world dictator. Babylon itself had more impact on the world than any other empire since. Through Jeremiah... The Lord said, Jeremiah 27 verse 5, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are in the face, on the face of the earth, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. As we read before, I've given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar would make sure that they were put into a pit, all the lions for a later date. Verse 7, All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his land own land comes and then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. So God was prophesying this through Jeremiah back in the land prior to this time with now Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. So the head of gold is Babylon, 612 B.C. The kingdom inferior to Babylon, the silver arms and chest would be the the Medo-Persian empire. The Medes and the Persians who came to rule, who conquered Babylon and we'll see how later in Daniel in 538 B.C. The Medes and the Persians. It was a dual rule. The Medes the Persians formed a national coalition together so that they could defeat Babylon which is why there are two arms of silver. But they were not as great as the head of gold They're silver now, these two countries coming together to try and function as one. And then the third one, another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over, note this, all the earth. So along comes the bronze empire. That would be the empire of Greece. Greece is the next major empire. We know all this historically, by the way, although it happened after Daniel.
1: 330
0: B.C., Year 330 B.C., Greece became the great empire. Thanks to the military genius of, anyone? Alexander. Alexander the Great, you guys are way ahead of me. Greece became the most widespread of any nation yet to date. Far beyond the territory of Babylon and the territory of the Medes and the Persians was the territory of Greece. It was a mighty kingdom. But Alexander was a military man and not a ruler. As a matter of fact, it said that after conquering the world, Alexander the Great became despondent because there were no more lands to conquer. It was done. Seriously, he sank into depression. He gave a big party one night and he got drunk and he wandered out into a downpour, ended up back in his tent, soaked through to the bone, caught pneumonia and died. And that was the end of Alexander the Great. He died at the age of 33. Another great conqueror died at the age of 33. Of course, that conqueror conquered death and rose again and is coming to rule in his kingdom. And of course, that's Jesus. Greece wasn't a monarchy. Greece became an oligarchy. So after Alexander died, a group of leaders would split into four factions and they would kind of run the territories of Greece. And so though Greece was more spread out, it was not as singularly strong as Babylon. Which is why, again, Babylon's the head of gold. The Medes and the Persians, silver. Greece was bronze. Bigger, but not greater. Okay? Verse 40. There will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. That is, all prior or all all former kingdoms. They will be crushed by the iron, which is the empire of Rome, beginning in 63 B.C. 63 B.C. But note, Rome is iron, but it's two legs. Why two legs? Because Rome ended up splitting. Eastern and Western. Uh, Rome and, and Constantinople. Now I gave you the dates. Here are the years. The Babylonian Empire lasted 66 years. The Medes and Persians, their empire lasted 208 years. The Greeks would last another 185 years. Finally, Rome would last 500 years. And Rome was never conquered. It just kind of imploded. It corrupted from within and and kind of began to farm out and and be slightly overrun, but was never overrun in the way that the Greeks or the Medo-Persians or the Babylonians were overrun by the empires following them. But if each empire's value is diminishing, as the medals indicate, then how could each empire conquer the previous one? And why was each empire greater both in terms of size and years with Rome lasting the longest? If it's diminishing, Well, the bottom line is man views success very differently than the Lord does. God sees success in another way. We're going to see this very clearly in Daniel chapter 7 when Daniel gets a vision of these same exact empires. When Nebuchadnezzar has his vision, it's a glorious statue. You know, almost an idol to humanity. The glory of the kingdoms of man. When God gives the vision to Daniel, it's of four beasts. Each beast is more bizarre and more ugly than the one before. Verse 41, continuing, in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Uh, A little side note on America right now. You You know why our country is not as strong as it used to be? It's because of factions. It's because we're not all Americans anymore. We're something American. or or this American, or that American, or the other American, rather than just Americans. And I, I simply point that out because that's how a country gets brittle. When a national identity starts to get divided up and piecemealed out to all sorts of different identities, well, then you really don't hang together. And this is what we see happening with these kingdoms. And what will happen, by the way, in a final kingdom, a kingdom that is yet to come, this is what we could call the fifth iteration of the kingdom's but it's really a weakened continuance. And that is the iron and clay. The feet of iron and clay speaks of something else. And it is a revived Roman Empire. I know a lot of study has changed over the years. I know that back in the 80s, Chuck Smith was talking about this revived Roman Empire. So was Chaverne and McGee in the 70s and 80s and others. We're talking about it and people are saying, ah, I don't think this. you're going to go the European Union route, aren't you? With some property thing. Rick, that's old school. It's a revived Roman Empire. And there's really no two ways about it because we're talking about the legs of iron that turn into feet of iron and clay. So there is a connection to the legs in the first place. It comes out of the legs in the first place. And the Bible, I think, is very clear about this. What that exactly is going to look like, how it's going to play out, and how it's connected to Rome, well, that's something we're going to study out and talk about more as we go further into Daniel. But this is a revived Roman Empire. The composite feet... They represent a combination of nations. And it is the most brittle part of the entire statue. Which, if you happen to be a sculptor, probably not the best idea in sculpting a statue to make the feet the most brittle. Because that thing's coming down. And that's the direction of the nations. And you note this, just as feet have ten toes... This empire will include ten nations and will each have a king. Ten nations led by ten kings. These will be subjected to another king in the time of the tribulation. And I'm not basing that off of old prophecy updates. I'm basing it off of scripture. Because Daniel chapter 7 verse 24, elucidating this a bit more for us, says, out of this kingdom ten kingdoms will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings what does that mean Rick gotta wait for chapter 7 we'll get there Revelation 17 verse 12 speaking of the same thing says the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour which tells us who the king is who's going to subdue three of the kings of these ten kings over these ten kingdoms that are making up the feet of iron and clay. Are you with me? If you're not, hang on. We'll get there. Antichrist. This is speaking of the kingdom, the coming kingdom of Antichrist, which we know at its most simple basis will grow out of a revival of the one-time great Iron Empire, Rome. It will grow out of Rome into this piecemeal ten-kingdom thing, conglomeration functioning together and Antichrist is going to take control and power over the whole thing. And we will get into that explicitly as I said in a later study. But did you notice the jump? We went from ancient Rome, legs of iron, ancient Rome, all of a sudden to the kingdom of Antichrist, feet of iron and clay, well, what happened in between? Tell me about the ankles. <laughs> How do we get from the legs to the feet so quickly? That's quite a distance. Why? No coalition kingdom like this has ever come out of Rome. So what Daniel describes here, first of all, you need to understand that. He, gets, he nails Babylon, he nails Medo-Persia, he nails Greece, and he nails Rome. Every single one of these are, are, you know, Babylon's there at the time. Every one of these nations will flow right after the next, exactly as Daniel prophesies here and in chapter 7. Remarkable. But you get down to this last part of the kingdom, and it's never happened. So did he get it wrong? Understand this again. What nation is the key factor in all of these nations? It's Israel, right? Israel has been called by many prophecy students God's timepiece. And you got to get that to understand what's going on in Daniel. You're going to see this again in Daniel chapter 9. When Israel ceased to be a nation, the clock stopped. The prophecies here of Daniel, pause, we are at the ankles right now. We're not into the feet yet. The legs of iron took place, but the clock stopped. Daniel's prophecies froze just like a clock when the power goes out. We're just kind of sitting there flashing right at the ankles. In 70 AD, with Rome still in power, the power fully went out of Israel. Rome under General Titus destroyed Israel completely and some thought finally as a nation that's it for the Jews there were some skirmishes after that but for the most part AD 70 was it later on in AD 135 another uprising and that was the people were done and they were dispersed throughout all the world But understand, from that time all the way up to the present generation, all over those many centuries, the Jews were the last people in history to sovereignly dwell in that land. Until May 14th, 1948, when amazingly the clock started ticking again. Because Israel came back into the land. Israel declared her independence on that day, 1948, as a sovereign nation. And the Bible says, who has heard such a thing? (laughs) Isaiah 66, verse 8. Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her sons. That is, after her pain, she came back. She was birthed. After the pain of the Holocaust, we saw the nation rise up to life again. Exactly as Isaiah prophesied 2,700 and roughly 48 years or so. 2,700 years before it happened. It's remarkable. Why doesn't Nebuchadnezzar dream of, or Daniel mention, other conquerors who attempted to dominate the world, like the Huns? They're not in here. Islam, not mentioned. The so called Holy Roman Empire that did try to dominate. Not here. Napoleon, Charlemagne, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin. The reason they're not mentioned is none of these ever built a kingdom to conquer or subjugate the Jews. Babylon did. Okay, The Medes and the Persians held sway over Israel in its existence. Greece did. Israel was caught in a massive number of battles throughout the Grecian Empire. And of course, Rome, even through the time of Jesus. But in eighty seventy 70, Israel ceases to be a nation and all these other players across the world, all these great men and great nations, not so great. And they had nothing to do with Israel. Hitler tried. He tried to annihilate the Jewish people. That didn't work out so well for him in the long run. And though the cost was huge, Israel's travail, 6 million, they were birthed into a land. They came back. Even with Hitler, it was, the Jewish people were outside the land in days when Israel was not a nation and all of these who ever gave the Jews trouble failed. The iron and clay feet of Rome will in some form or another find unstable footing as a breakable coalition and they will go down under the last fallen dictator who is the Antichrist. But this is the best part. And this is where we come to the, literally the climax of the dream and I believe the aspect of the dream most frightening and disturbing to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever forever inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Remember, we're still in the courtroom of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel is still explaining all this to the king in a remarkable fashion and the king, his mouth just must be hanging wide open. What Daniel says... I know this has kept you up nights. I know this is disturbing. Here's why. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay are no match for this massive stone. This massive stone cut out not by human hands. What does that tell us? It is not a work of man. It's not a work of man. And you need to hold on to that thought. It's incredibly important. This is no work of man. This is the rock, the stone... Psalm 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Mm -hmm. Isaiah 28.16, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed, unlike the disturbance of Nebuchadnezzar. Peter applied both of these verses to the stone Jesus Christ. And please understand that. 1 Peter 2, 7, Peter says, you know what? He is the stone the builders rejected. He is the choice cornerstone laid in Zion. He is the foundation. That is Jesus. And so this rock is not just the kingdom, because what is a kingdom without a king? The rock is Jesus. The stone is a picture of Christ Jesus coming to rule and reign in his kingdom. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 9. The prophet said, For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Ooh, Seven eyes. Why? Well, it speaks of the Holy Spirit. The seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Look it up. So the Holy Spirit on this stone. Well, why would the Holy Spirit be on this stone? Because the stone is the, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit is his spirit. He says, I will. Set before Joshua, that is Joshua the priest in that day, in Zechariah's time, on one stone or seven eyes, behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord God of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. One day. The fourth thing to note through our study tonight, this is the decisive event. This is the decisive event. The supernatural stone, if you can even picture it, imagine it. This massive Babylonian statue, head of gold and arms of, and chest of silver and belly of bronze, legs of, of iron, feet of iron and clay. And out of the sky comes this massive stone, not cut out by human hands,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and strikes the feet first. And they shatter and turn to dust. And then then the iron iron turns to dust. And then the bronze dust and the silver dust and the head of gold dust and the whole thing is obliterated, completely wiped out. This speaks of a decisive event. Not one that pans out over 2,000 years. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying the king brings the kingdom. I'm saying the stone comes barreling out of the heavens with the great clouds of glory to shatter once and for all the image of the glory of man's earthly rule. And this is not the church. And that's what I'm really getting at here with this stone. The stone is not the church. The stone is Jesus Amen. and His kingdom. Well, aren't we the kingdom? No, we're, we're citizens of His kingdom. Amen. And the Bible is very clear about this, and yet some in the church today believe that the church is the stone. Some would say that we are builders of the kingdom and we are conquering the earth for Christ. But my friends, we didn't build a kingdom. We receive a kingdom. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. We are receiving a kingdom. One that Jesus brings. One that Jesus gives. One that He brings through conquering. And this rock, this stone, which becomes the kingdom, which spreads out and covers the entire earth in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, cut out without human hands, which again means it's solely a work of God and not a work of man. It's not the gradual salvation of the world by the church. Now some of you might be getting uncomfortable. What does that say about evangelism? Why are then we telling people about Jesus if we're not building a kingdom? We're not building a kingdom. We're inviting people to become citizens of the kingdom that is yet to come. We are not living in that kingdom. I'll tell you what, if this is the kingdom right now, I don't want a part of it. Because I'm not real thrilled with the whole realm thing going on. And with sin and disease and darkness and hurt and heartache and pain and all that comes with it, that's not the kingdom. That's the world of man. That's man ruling the world. But when Jesus Christ comes in His kingdom, it will be perfect. And that's kingdom come, and I am a citizen of that kingdom. And so my role right now, I'm simply bringing people to Christ who saves, who offers, who gives citizenship into that eternal kingdom. See, the problem here with with us thinking that we do this, that we conquer the world and then hand the world over to Jesus, that was the Holy Roman Empire's failure to see. There was a belief early on that... They would conquer the world. And so they tried and failed. We don't conquer the world. The rock, who is Christ, he does that. And if you're not sure, go read Revelation 19, verses 11 through 15, when he shows up and he's slaying people with the sword of his mouth. And it's amazing. I won't take time to read it tonight. But Revelation 19 speaks of that decisive event when Jesus comes and conquers and shatters. You don't shatter people into salvation. <coughs> Okay, you offer them the truth of Jesus, but when He comes, He will shatter the kingdoms of the world. Right now, these are the days of grace. These are the days where Jesus says, I love you. I want you to receive me. I've got great plans for you. My forgiveness, my grace has been poured out for you. I heard something today. I, I gotta share. The song in Christ alone. I just read this in Midnight Call, Glenn. In Christ Alone, a beautiful, great song, sung by many churches. Uh, Keith and, and Kristen Getty wrote it. And it was cut out from being added into the official hymnal of the Presbyterian Church of the USA. They said no, because of one line. And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied the board of the Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, said, that's too harsh. That's too harsh. If you can, They actually wrote a letter to the Gettys and said, if you could change that line to and on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. That would be better. Because the wrath of God sounds a little harsh. Gang, listen, God is going to pour out wrath on sin. And I'll tell you what, if He poured out the kind of wrath that we saw poured out in Jesus on the cross, you think He's just going to let the world off? When the kingdom comes? Absolutely not. In the death of Jesus, all of that wrath, that we, by the way, deserve, all of that wrath was satisfied by the sacrifice, the brutal sacrifice that Jesus took on Himself so that we don't have to receive that wrath. And that does magnify the love of God. And if you don't know Jesus, I invite you to know Him and to trust Him as Lord and Savior because... He, as we sang earlier, He is the only stone. He is the only, there is no other hope but Jesus Christ Himself. These are days of grace, the favorable year of the Lord. But when His kingdom comes, He will strike suddenly and permanently. Flip over to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. Jesus has just shared the parable of the of the landowner, of the vineyard. He, he takes Isaiah chapter 5, this parable of the vineyard, the vineyard being Israel, and He describes it and He expands upon it and He points to the Jewish leaders and makes it clear that they're messing up big time. And then Jesus says to them in verse 42, "...did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord." And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. This passage has often been exploited among Christians as a call to Christian brokenness. You need to fall on the stone of Jesus and be broken before Him. And I don't think that's good preaching. I think that misses what Jesus is really saying. Listen to verse 44 again. He says, He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Not just humbled. Not just brought to bow before the Lord. Broken to pieces. It doesn't sound good. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Well, the stone is Jesus, clearly. And Jesus is tapping into all of the stone prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures, as well as the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. He is the stone. But if we spiritualize His teaching here to the Christian condition, we completely lose its breadth and its power. Who falls on the stone and is broken? First of all, note this, it's Israel. He's talking to the Jewish people. And it is Israel who falls on the stone. It is Israel who ends up broken. Isaiah 8 verse 14 says, He, the Lord, shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He is the stone on which Israel fell and was broken. What do you mean? The rejection of Christ yielded the brokenness of Israel. They fell on the stone and Israel was broken to pieces. The glory of Israel fell on the stone and was broken. 1 Corinthians 1.23 Paul says, We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block or a stumbling stone, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God And less than 40 years after his crucifixion in AD 70, Israel was quite literally broken to pieces. You know, Daniel knew that? Daniel chapter 9 verse 26, little preview for you. He's told that the Messiah will be cut off, literally killed, and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, that is Rome, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. 500 plus years before it happened the angel Gabriel tells Daniel the Messiah is going to be killed and after he's killed guess what's going to happen to Jerusalem? It's going to fall on the stone and be broken to pieces. So Israel falls on the stone and is broken to pieces but the next question then is for Jesus on whom does the stone fall and Nebuchadnezzar saw it. When his dream became a nightmare, the stone falls on the glory of man and it will be scattered like dust. Quickly back to Daniel, verse 46 of Daniel chapter 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. I bet he did. And did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made the request of the king and he was appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. After all of that, after this amazing dream was shared and interpreted by Daniel, in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar gets a bright idea to build this statue. (laughs) I'll leave you with this thought. Don't put your hope in the glory of man because it's going to fail. Don't put your hope in the kingdoms of man or the great nations of the earth. Put your hope and your faith in the King Himself, in Jesus Christ, who is the hope of nations and when his kingdom comes his rule will
1: be from everlasting to everlasting. Amen.